You're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver some of the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Chris Katowski, Managing Director and Senior Analyst at Oppenheimer. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on February 6, 2023. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our episode entitled Rate Hikes and Unchartered Territory, What's an Investor to Do? I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're here with Chris Katowski, who's a familiar voice on the Let's Talk Future podcast. Chris is the Managing Director and Senior Analyst covering banks, brokers, and private equity companies at Oppenheimer. Now, I wanted to get Chris back here because there's so much going on in his space. We've just had a bunch of his companies report earnings. For a while now, Chris has been talking about a curious phenomenon that's come up in this cycle of higher interest rates. Some forecasting models, to use his term, have gone a bit wonky. So we're going to talk about what that means and the implications going forward. And of course, we still have an active Fed. And so we're going to talk about how that behavior has affected modeling and expectations. And to add to our theme of uncharted territory, we've got the debt ceiling issue looming. So it's a lot to cover. So let's get to it with a warm welcome back, Chris. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, good to have you back. Okay. So a bunch of your companies have just reported earnings. How, how do things look? It was better than expected for the most part for the plain vanilla kind of lending banks and probably a little bit worse than expected for the investment banks. But directionally, things were pretty much uh, in, in the directions that you would have expected looking at the data going into the quarter. And, you know, in the last episode that we said, or I said that uh, watching banks for most of the last 10 years was like uh, watching a pet rock because they didn't do very much. They had two or 3% uh, loan and revenue growth each year, and that was pretty much it. But if you look at the last six months in, in the third quarter, net interest income, which is the bank's key revenue source, was up 10.5%. And in the fourth quarter, it was up another 8.2%. And that was 2.4% better than uh, the analyst community was looking for. So, you know, after that long period of um, pet rockdom, the, uh, the, 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 the companies really have come alive and are showing. Which you kind of forecasted. So, okay, so you mentioned net income, and that's clearly affected by the higher rate environment that we're in. Let's talk about that a little bit more, if you could. You know, it's interesting. Most the, the banking business model has always been calibrated to the idea that banks generate either free funds or low cost deposits because people leave their money in the bank. And if you think about the average person that comes, the average family, when they're dealing with a bank, they probably have a couple of thousand dollars on deposit and a couple of thousand comes in every month on on direct deposit from their employer and a couple thousand goes out on on bill pay every month you know those uh, account those kinds of deposits are relatively not rate sensitive right you're not you're not really there to earn an interest rate on that money you want it to be secure you want it to 
pay your bills, you want to transact, and you want to be able to walk into a branch if anything goes wrong, right? So that's why the average person leaves a couple thousand dollars in the bank. And so in general, the higher uh, rates go, the uh, the, the better the, the earnings on that. You know, it becomes a negative if the if rates go so high that borrowers can't pay their interest costs, right? If if loan rates go so high that 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 the borrower gets squeezed. But at this re- level here, where you're coming off extremely low levels of interest rates, and you've had a pretty dramatic move up, uh, so far it's been mainly a a positive for the banks. The interesting thing here is that even though the banks kind of beat the numbers by a good margin uh, this quarter. They're all saying now, oh, slow down. Uh, you know, we, we've probably seen the peak benefit uh, in, in rates. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I completely buy that. That's what their models are all saying. Well, well, let's, let, let's, let's stop there because they've been saying that for a while. And you talked last year about how the banks had consistently underestimated net income. And the banks have the best forecasting models out there, you would think. So what's happening here with that? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, when you look at JP Morgan in the third quarter, they had their third quarter earnings call on October 14th. So they're well into the fourth quarter already, right? And and they'd had a big increase in in net interest income in the in the third quarter and on October 14th they guided that the fourth quarter would be around 19 billion. Instead it came in at 20.3 and maybe to some of the listeners that doesn't sound like much but after years and years of things just moving by a tiny hair uh, to beat your number by 7%, you know, just 78 days after you make a forecast is is quite extraordinary. And so, you know, what I think is happening is that you know a lot of these rate movements have been so volatile and so unexpected a lot of the models which were probably calibrated during much more stable quiet times uh, i think are probably not giving us great answers yeah which is a little daunting because as i said you would think that the banks have the best infrastructure to to put their models together so if they're kind of consistently underestimating where we are in the earnings cycle or the amount of net income that they're producing, but we're seeing estimates being cut. I guess you question that if that's the right way to go. I I think the banks might be sandbagging a little bit and they want to leave, leave themselves some room to beat. And, you know, that's prudent. That's that's wise. And, you know, I'd say we, we kind of saw some of the models break down uh, going into the great financial crisis. Right. I mean, uh, but there it was working in an adverse way, whereas this what time I think it can work for us in a positive way. That And if you remember the, the models going into the great financial crisis, they were just too incremental. So, you know, at the, at the end of 2007, for example, Merrill Lynch estimated that it's so-called value at risk, you know, which is the amount that they theoretically could lose in any given day, uh, was ninety-five uh, was sixty-five million dollars. But at the end of the year, they had lost twenty-seven billion. <laughs> you know, so it was a model that was calibrated during very, very incremental times, where when when mortgage-backed securities had moved only very incrementally. 
and it didn't capture what would happen in, in a more volatile environment. You know, I suspect that we might be seeing something like that here, but this time I think it works uh, It works for us as a benefit. As a- so we're seeing that here because we've come off a period of such persistently low rates, and now that that's moving, the models haven't caught up. So, and I think there's ongoing benefit from a couple of things. Almost a quarter of the, the industry's earn, earning assets are funded by what I call free funds, meaning equity, checking accounts, other kinds of float that that they just don't pay interest on. So, it, it, you know, if you look at the KBW group of banks, they have about 14 trillion in earning assets and only 10 trillion in interest-bearing liability. So that that's four trillion dollars that you're getting whatever the market rate of interest is. Where, where there's not a commensurate coupon on, on the interest expense side. There's also ongoing loan growth. If you look at the feds, uh, every Friday they give you the, the total aggregate loans in the banking system, the loans and assets. And at year end, we're roughly 11% up year on year. And that's beginning to slow down and you want it to slow down. You want it to slow down to something like nominal GDP. So you'll call it a you know mid single digit kind of rate. That's where you'd like to see it. But, you know, we've had such a head of steam from loan growth in, in, in the last couple of quarters that the averages for 2023 are almost certain to be very meaningfully above where they were in 2022. So that should also benefit net interest income growth. So, you know, on, on balance, I continue to think the stocks have outperformed. They, they're, they're a couple of points ahead of the S&P 500 so far year to date. But I think they can continue to do well because, you know, we, we we're used to and conditioned to thinking about uh, how banks perform in an ultra low rate environment. That's what we've had for 10 years. And a slightly higher rate environment is is a good thing and it's an ongoing benefit. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, we're, we're talking here about uncharted territory and we still have the Fed on the move. And so let's spend a couple of minutes on that. You know, I I think you've not been a total fan of how the Fed has handled these rate moves and when they've sprung into action. You know, what are your thoughts? Well, it, I I do have to say it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, the vaccines came generally available April, May of, of 2021. By July, anybody who had wanted to be vaccinated could have gotten a vaccine. You know, they were certainly out on the street in New York making it available to everyone who wanted one. And 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 people were crowding back into restaurants, right? And you you still had the uh, the whole stimulus from Biden just declared but not yet sent. So, you know, you have this very clear sign that the world is turning back to normal that that you're you're leaving the the lockdowns behind and that people are out and you know, it, it was clear. It, it was not a mystical thing that was lost on people. It wasn't lost on the market. And despite all that, you had another eight months of the Fed buying bonds and quantitatively easing and not raising the, the Fed funds rate. And, you know, by that time, inflation had, of course, gotten quite ahead of steam. And, and then they had to move much more violently. And, you know, now it's interesting how quickly they're stepping back, you know, maybe hopefully it will all work and it will come in for a smooth landing. But it just seems to me like it's been much more herky-jerky than it needed to have been. 
If you had started a couple of months earlier, you could have maybe done this with 25 and 50 basis point increments in, in both directions rather than the 375 basis point ones we had. You know, now, given how high inflation still is, you're not quite sure that that we've got it in the box. It's more of an uncertainty. Well, well, that's the conundrum, because it felt like inflation was easing. And yet, though, you know, you talk about models not working well, no one, I don't think, predicted the strong employment numbers that we just got and some other areas of strength. And so the market's continuing to show this you know, up and down mood disorder that rates are going to still go higher or we're going to see a recession and and the Fed's going to start cutting. So we are in uncharted territory in that sense. I like Larry Summers' characterization of this, like we're in kind of a bathroom in an old hotel where it has the hot and the cold water dials and and you know the water's too cold and so you're you're, you're dialing frantically on the on the hot side and then then oops, you get scalded and it's, it's, hard. it's hard. There's a lag effect and it's hard to, to, to know just exactly where to plant the dials. And I think after the 375s, now we turned the, the hot water dial off pretty dramatically by going all the way back down to 25. Yeah. And, and we see that in the yield curve, right? And what's being signaled in the market. Yeah, I mean the yield curve now is signaling late this year, early next year that you get some pretty significant rate cuts. You know, I question how great a predictor of future rates the yield curve is. I mean, in March of 2022, it was indicating very mild little increases. It did not have 475 basis points anywhere in its. It was signaling more like a hundred basis point increase. So it, it's it's certainly a flawed indicator. Personal belief, I think, is that we'll probably be at these higher levels for quite a while. I I would be very surprised if the Fed actually had to cut rates within the within the coming year. Yeah. Well, unofficially, I kind of agree with you too. Okay. I guess we also have to talk about the debt ceiling issue, which you and I have lived through a lot of cycles where this happens. And, you know, the knee jerk is that we're going to get this done, but we're also in a different political environment now. And I think we have to acknowledge that the risks are a bit greater um, than they have in previous times. What, what do you think? You would think that people now recognize that you have to pay the bills, right? You've spent the money, you've got to pay the bills, and that you know, this is a this is a bad hill to die on, uh, you know, and and that it's it's kind of pointless. You would hope that people recognize that. But, you know, given the polarization in the country, you, you don't know what's going to happen. My my bet is it will ultimately, this, this one too will pass. But I'm not a political analyst, but I, I have to believe that ultimately the, the vast majority of people in Congress recognize the value of having a AAA uh, bond rating and, and being the world's reserve currency, that it's important. We, we would hope. I mean, you're not a political analyst, but you are a bank analyst. What do you think the banks are doing in respect to the, the debt ceiling issue in terms of planning or actions? You know, there is very little that you could do if the federal government defaulted on its obligations, right? There, there, there is just nothing that you could do, I think. And so I'm not sure that there, that there is a, a fallback there. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of conversations happening between the banks and the our politicians, one would think. One would think that they're making their opinions felt, yes. So so here we are and and what you've said is that just to summarize that you know your thesis about the position of the big banks in this environment continues to hold and and you think that they're in a pretty good position with rates going up. We've talked about the Fed and that you know we kind of think that rates are going to stay higher for the foreseeable future here. You know, another area that's been stymied or um, sort of in troubled waters is capital markets and where we are on the deal flow as we head into 2023. Given everything that you've said, what what do you think there? The the great thing about the investment banking business and the capital markets is that the window can close every now and then, but it never stays shut. And the the thing is, if you think about the way our economy works these days, every day there are venture capitalists starting up companies and funding new companies and uh, private equity guys funding new companies. And thing is, sooner or later, they run out of money and they need money. And there a lot of companies have gone public in the last couple of years that are just going to run out of money. And when they run out of money, they need to do one of a couple of things, either raise debt, raise equity, they need to sell, they need to restructure, you know, all those things create activity. And, you know, in my mind, it what it really takes is some successful distress investing. Um, you know, I remember, for example, in the great financial crisis, uh, you know, there, there was this big office complex in in London, a a billion dollar deal, a company that had a billion dollars of debt. Blackstone ended up being able to get like half of that, the equity in that property by putting in a hundred million dollars. And so, you know, what you're looking for, I think, is the smart money, in particular, the private equity companies to start putting some money to work in and, and to look at companies that are are somewhat stressed. And then when people look at that and they say, oh, that's going to be a good deal for the buyer. That's when all of a sudden, I think the floodgates will open up and then there'll be a, a, a surge of activity. And, you know, it's hard to say exactly when that's going to happen. Is it is it two quarters from now or four quarters from now? But I'd still be surprised if we don't see a at least a mini boomlet of activity somewhere before the end of 23. Yeah. And when you think about that opportunism or greed begetting greed, if rates are going to stay higher, there's a motivation to get some of those deals going too, while we're where we are at rates before they move higher again. So that could be a motivator. And just standing pat is not a uh, an option for a lot of companies, right? There are there are a lot of companies out there that that burn cash. You know, if you think about how the economy is different nowadays than 
it was, say, in the 1960s. In the 1960s, you had all these conglomerates and big companies that started new divisions, and there'd always be a parent company there to take care of you. In the venture capital-funded world, the world doesn't work like that. There are companies out there that are burning cash every single month, every single year. And, and think about Tesla, how it was burning cash for eight years before it became cash flow positive, and same with uh, Netflix. And, you know, nowadays you look at a lot of the alternative energy companies. They, they're, you know, while they're building out their network, they're burning cash to, to a large extent. Or, you know, think of, uh, I heard our analyst, uh, Brian Nagel, speak about Carvana a little while ago. And he was like, yeah, they still need a couple billion dollars more to, uh, to, to, fully get their business model ramped to where it'll be self-sustaining. And there are a lot of companies like that, I think. And sooner or later, they're going to need to come to market. Well, so as we head into 2023 and we talk about these uncharted waters or uncharted territory that we're in, it seems to me that you're remaining quite calm and you've had a constructive take on the larger financial institutions. And it sounds like that's where you continue to be. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things about the banks, my, one of my other favorite phrases is Mark Twain, who once said, you know, the cat that sat on a hot stove is not going to sit on a hot stove again. But that cat also isn't going to sit on a cold stove because that's that cat is just not going to like stove. You know, I I think the way most investors feel about the uh, the banking uh, commercial banking sector is exactly that way, which is like I, I don't like banks, and so they people have been extraordinarily cautious of the banks ever since the great financial crisis. When you look at it, you know, we now have more than a decade of banks performing very steadily, very stably in a much less risky, much better capitalized manner than they ever did before. And I covered the banks in the 80s and 90s when, you know, they're there when they did a lot of stupid things with a tiny little cushion of capital. And I, I just tell you, I think that they are so much more responsibly run now than they ever were in, in the past that it uh, it makes a difference. And so I, you know, I bring that perspective uh, of that's what generally makes me positive about the, the group. Well, I like ending on a note of positivity. So thank you for your time once again, Chris. Very lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community and expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future. Thank you.